Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to be in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 for the next uh, couple of three months. So go ahead, if you have one of those little ribbon markers, go ahead and put that there. You'll know right where to turn uh, every Sunday morning. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 20 this week. We're, next week, I promise, next week we are really hitting the report card. But we still got some foundation to lay here before we get into that. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, the implicit call in verses 1 through 8 by John to live for Jesus. And I used that phrase something like 100 times probably uh, last week. Live for Jesus. That's, that, that's what he was getting across, the, the, the words that he was using. Though he never used that phrase, that was this, the implicit call. This week, we see in John's writing his desire for, for you to know your Savior. And again, it's a phrase he doesn't use, but it is there. It's, it, it, it explains why he goes into such detail about the person who's telling him to write these things. See, he understood, and we need to know, that both are necessary. When we get to the report card next week, and we begin to look at our church, look at what Jesus told John to write to these seven churches in Asia Minor, and we begin to apply those things to ourselves and, and see, okay, where do we fit in, in what John was, uh, in the letter that John was writing to the, the churches? How would, how would we receive the same letter? Which, which church would we be? Which of the seven would we be? Would we be parts of this one and parts of that one? Would, be, would we be all of this one or all of that one? will know that it is, that letter is written from somebody infinitely qualified to judge our lives and our church. And I'm not talking about John. I'm talking about our Lord and Savior, the head of the church, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So as we look at those things and, and, and as we, we hear what the Bible's telling us and, and what I'm, as you hear what I'm saying from the stage, don't think, oh, he's just being mean. He's just judging us. And we talked about that a little bit last week. He's just, you know, saying stuff. No, no, this is Jesus himself saying, this is how the church should be. Now, how are you lining up to that? So that's what we're going to see this morning. We are going to know our Savior when we get through verses 9 through 20 of Revelation chapter 1. Hopefully you have a Bible. There's some there in the pew. If you don't, uh, you can look at because most of you can't read that. Uh, I can barely read it standing here, but it's there in case you have super duper eyesight. Starting in verse 9, says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a fiery flame, his feet like fine bronze fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. 
From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Know your Savior. We have an incredible description of Jesus. Now, there have been all sorts of bad interpretations of this, uh, of this passage. Some have used the description of his hair, the description of the, the way his face looked, to try to define Jesus' ethnicity. We know Jesus' ethnicity. He was a Jew. There, that covers it. But this isn't a passage about what Jesus looked like. I don't think when we get to heaven, we're going to see this picture. That's not the point. What John is doing here is describing Jesus' appearance, not his features. There's a difference. John is talking about what he saw. And he is telling us, this is the Jesus that I saw. This is the vision that I had. And in this vision, you learn something about Jesus. That's why John tells us this. That's why Jesus made clear to tell him, write in verse uh, 19, write what you see right now. The vision doesn't start in just a minute, John. When, when, I, when I step back and you start seeing all these things, the vision started, he actually says, write what you've already seen, write what you're seeing, and write what you're going to see here in a little bit. Because it was all important. And we see in this image of Jesus a number of things that we need to know about our Savior. And we're going to begin verses 9 and 10. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The first thing, know your Savior is worth your suffering. John tells us, I was, uh, I'm your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the, in, in the, pers in the uh, persecution, that we are all suffering. Remember I told you last week that this, uh, this suffering very likely, or this letter was written very likely in the time of Emperor, uh, Roman Emperor Domitian. And the, that was a major, major persecution of, of Christians. Because, as I said, they, they no longer identified with Jews because they were getting kicked out of the synagogues. And at this point, Jews were not even in very good favor with Roman Empire. At one point, the Jews could be their own group and, and they could worship as they wanted. They weren't required to worship the emperor. But they uh, had fallen out of favor because of a little thing called a revolt in 70 AD that had gotten the temple de completely destroyed. And so they, uh, the Jews were no longer in favor, and Christians, whether you identified with the Jews as they did for a little while or were something totally different, they were suffering major persecution. John says, I'm your partner. I'm your brother in this tribulation. I'm a brother in the kingdom, and I'm brother in perseverance in Jesus. I'm going through this too. Going through it, how? 
on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony of about Jesus. Now, when I think of going to an island, I think of Hawaii and I think of vacation. That was not the island that John was on. Now, he wasn't there stranded by himself. As a matter of fact, there was uh, industry there. There, was, there were towns on this island of Patmos. But he was kicked out of Asia, kicked out of the Roman Empire, put on this island. You've got to live there. This is where we send people. wasn't easy to get off. You couldn't cause any more trouble from there, is what they were telling him. He was suffering for Jesus our Savior, your Savior, is worth your suffering. If you follow Jesus, he didn't say, take up your backpack with your trail mix and your favorite book and a flashlight because we're going on a hike and follow me. He said, take up your cross. You didn't carry a cross because it was fun. You didn't carry a cross because it was a nice piece of jewelry. You carried a cross because when you got to a certain do, uh, uh, destination, they were going to nail you to that thing and kill you. That's why you carried a cross. Jesus is worthy of our suffering. Know your Savior, Savior is worth your suffering. Suffering from within the church and from without. There is friendly fire in the church. There are always those in the church who would prefer everybody be like them. Now, maybe it's a good thing to be like them, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe there are people that, that, that you look at and say, I need to be like that person. That person is, is, is on fire. Model yourselves out of, after them. Let them mentor you. Grow to be like them. But there are also people in the church that look at those people that are on fire and then say, I really wish they'd shut up because they're kind of embarrassing me. I mean, let's be honest. All they do is talk about Jesus. Everybody they see, they invite to church. Can't they just cool it a little bit? And, 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 and don't sit there and think you haven't done it because you probably have. There's friendly fire in the church. We persecute our own. It's been said that the church is the only organization that shoots its wounded. And we do. Don't bring your sin into the church. Don't come in until you get it cleaned up. Oh, so-and-so, he's, he's a bad one. Boy, if he just straightened his life out, he could come to church. No. Come to church and get your life straightened out. We don't shoot our own. We don't want to be a part of friendly fire. Folks, there's enough persecution outside. The enemy is going to attack us when we get out there. It's going to happen. Let's make this place a place, a safe haven, where we can come as Christians and say, I struggle with this. I hurt in this area. I have this problem and this problem and this problem and have those people loved and, 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 and mentored and encouraged in the faith instead of, well, you need to go home until you get that figured out. We don't need that kind of thing in here. Yes, we do. Know your Savior is worth your suffering. Know that when you get on fire... When you have decided, I'm giving Jesus everything, 
that when people in the church say, you need to tone it down, you need to tell them, you need to tone it up. Because we all should be just like that. Know that your Savior is worth suffering for. Know your Savior is worth worshiping. John said, uh, I was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony of Jesus. He is being persecuted. He is in uh, uh, isolation. He's been kicked out. And yet he knows, in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. See, his, his, his uh, isolation, his imprisonment did not affect his worshiping Jesus. Know your Savior is worth worshiping. See, nothing stopped John from worshiping on Jesus' day. And, I, I, you, you know, I don't know what he was living in. He could have been living in a cave. He could have been by himself. We, we think he probably had his, uh, his secretary with him. Uh, he, he had some people around him. He may have even started a little church there. Who knows what he was doing. But when he got put on that island... A lot of us, and I would be one of them too, would say, John, just rest a while, man. You've been through some junk. Sit back. You know, it's, yeah, I know it's Sunday, but just sit and you, you can worship in your recliner, right? You can worship on the lake, right? You can worship at a football game, right? We'd tell, just, and John said, no. In the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, in the Lord's day, I was worshiping my God and my Savior in the way that He called me to worship Him. I wasn't worshiping Him like, hit Him! Hit Him! Get the ball! Get the ball! That wasn't worship for Him. It wasn't... That wasn't worship for Him. It wasn't worship for Him. Worship was being in the Spirit in the Lord's day, very likely with fellow believers. Your Savior is worth worshiping. And then at the end of verse 10, he says, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Why, why is football and reclining and, and camping and, and hunting and fishing, why are those things not worship? Because you don't hear God when the commentators are talking about what first down was gotten and, and what sort of trouble Terrell Owens got in this week. You're not, you're not hearing from God. You're hearing uh, uh, whoever, I don't even know who the announcers are on football anymore on Sundays. You're hearing what they're saying. You're not hearing what God's saying. When you are out uh, fishing, you're, you're hearing uh, the, the, the zoom of the, the line and the kerplunk of the water and, and maybe the radio or, or whatever you have with you. When you're hunting, you're listening for the sound of the woods. You're not listening for the sound of God's voice. When you're sleeping, you ain't listening to nothing. The Lord speaks when we worship Him. The Lord speaks to his people when his people gather together. And John heard it. Know your Savior's voice is like a trumpet. That does not mean Jesus stood behind John and said, and that was how he got his attention. We see something about Jesus here. When somebody heard a trumpet in those days, military men, when you went to basic training, what woke you up in the morning? Trumpet, right? Y'all still did Reveille, basic training, you still do Reveille. Uh, taps put you to sleep. It was, and, and then, yeah, especially if you were, you know, go back 
150 years when we had a real uh, cavalry with horses. Uh, I've watched the John Wayne movies. I know how it worked. They had all the different trumpet calls that meant all sorts of different things. You couldn't yell, hey guys, line up this way. He played a little trumpet thing, and they knew, get the horses in this position. Different trumpet thing went this way. Different trumpet thing mean get the heck out of here. You know, they knew that a trumpet meant something. They listened for that. It was no different in John's day. No different for the Roman armies. No different for... 2,000 years with Joshua and Abraham and those guys. The trumpet meant something. When there was a trumpet call, everybody perked up and listened. And so John hears a voice like a trumpet. A trumpet that was clear. It, it was not, there was no doubt. When, when you're uh, in, in basic, especially, when Reveille played, did you say, oh, just five more minutes? I don't think they allowed that. It was clear what Reveille meant. Get out of bed and get going wherever you knew you were supposed to go. It was clear what that trumpet meant. It was clear who was blowing the trumpet. It may have been some private, but it was the general that had the private blow it. It wasn't just some private. That trumpet meant get to doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it was a command. It was commanding to hear that trumpet. Again, it was clear that it's the boss saying it, and it's very clear what it means. The cavalry, when they hear the trumpet for retreat, if you don't, you're the one with the arrow sticking out of you, and everybody else is going the other direction. That's a commanding sound. And John says, I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet. Clear, I knew who, was, who it was from. I knew that, wait a minute, this is something I'm supposed to hear. And commanding, when I hear this voice, I am to do what that voice tells me to do. Know your Savior's voice is like a trumpet. Verse 11, that voice said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Verse 11, know your Savior's commands are vital. John heard the trumpet. John knew that it was clearly God getting his attention. God, uh, John knew that there was a command in that sound. And then the command was given. That command was vital. Understand, your obedience to the command does not just affect you. It affects others. Had John not obeyed the clarion call to write these words, to record what he saw and send it to these seven churches, every life in those churches would have been affected all the way down to 2012, July 15th. Had John not obeyed, others, now millions, would have been affected by his disobedience. It is vital to know your Savior's commands and then do them. For you, for your children, for your church, and generations that you may never envision you could affect. But your Savior's commands are vital. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. Now we find out Later on, in verse 20, the lampstands were actually representative of the churches. And look where Jesus is, standing among, it says, 
the lampstands. Know that your Savior is in the midst of his church. Know that your Savior is here today. Know that in the darkest periods of, of your history in the church, Jesus was there. Know in the, in the brightest spots, the days when you thought nothing could go wrong in the history of your church, Jesus was there. When you're hurting, Jesus is there. When you're rejoicing, Jesus is there. When there's persecution, that Jesus is there. Jesus is in the midst of his church. Because understand, brothers and sisters, First Baptist Church is his, not yours, and not mine. Jesus commands this church. We are the bride. We are the feet and the arms and the toes and the toenails, and some of you are the boogers. But we are the body of the church, and Jesus is the head. Jesus is the brain. Jesus is the one that runs it. Know that this is Jesus' church, and know your Savior is in the midst of it. Now let's camp out right here for just a second on these lampstands, and let's understand them a little bit better. Uh, the Jewish menorah is that seven-branched candelabra-looking thing, and they, you can find them with more arms than that, but generally it's this seven-branched candle. And this was representative of the Jews. And the seven branches came together on this lampstand and, and showed the unity of the people. Among other things, I mean, it had a, has a greater history even than that, but it's been in the temple. It was, uh, it, it was before the Star of David was a symbol of Judaism, this seven-branched lampstand, the menorah was. Here in Revelation, we see now that each church is its own lampstand. Each church is, is separate indeed, but, but they're the same. They're all part of this, this one body. And, and what it tells us is that Gentiles, that's you and me, that's non-Jews, through faith are grafted in and are now God's people. Each individual church is a part of that lampstand. We have our own lampstand and now we are, God is saying, uh, or Jesus is saying, it's not the menorah, it's not the Jewish people now. It's the church, it's believers. As I said, we are grafted in, read Galatians, or come on Wednesday nights, starting again in August, uh, and we're going through Galatians, and we see how that worked out, how we became, uh, we were uh, made a part of God's people through faith. Just as much as the Jews valued their lineage from Abraham, we get our spiritual lineage from the same person. We are God's people. So that's the lampstand. So when, when uh, Jesus stands among these seven lampstands, we are, by our faith in Christ, God's people. And Jesus is there in our midst. Verse 13. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. And now we're really getting into the description of Jesus. 
physical description, but again, not, not truly what he looked like, but how he appeared to John when he saw him. So verse 13, know your Savior is the great high priest. And we get that because of the robe and the gold sash. This was the priestly dress for the Jews. When anytime they saw that, they understood. And you can go back and read uh, Exodus and Leviticus, and you'll see how they dressed and how important it was, and every part meant something. When they saw Jesus dressed like this, they understood he is the high priest. He is taking the place. And we see that in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 10, And since we have a great high priest... Over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Those things that the high priest did on behalf of the people of Israel and had to do over and over and over. Now we have, Hebrews says, a great high priest over the house of God. Therefore, since we have this high priest, let us draw near. We can draw near to God. Remember, the high priest went into the temple. The high priest was the only one that went into the Holy of Holies only once a year. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple tore from top to bottom, no longer dividing man and God and having to have one guy every year who had to make sure he was just right or he'd get conked once he got in there. We have Jesus, the great high priest, who was perfect and went to the Father once for all and has now opened up that way so that we can go to the Father as well. Hebrews chapter 7, 23 and 20, through 28 gives us a, even, an even better understanding of, of what that means. 7, 23 to 28 says, Now many have become Levitical priests. Now we, we're talking about in the past with, the, with Israel, since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. They're going to die, so they can't be a high priest forever. But because he remains forever, he being Jesus, he being Jesus, holds his, Jesus's, priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. And see, that's what the high priest did when it went in, he went into the Holy of Holies. He interceded for the people. And it only happened once a year. And the people had to come back every year. And eventually that high priest died, and they had to have another high priest. And then he would do it. And so on and so forth. He, Jesus in 25, always lives to intercede for them. 26, for this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do. First for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all whom, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, the oath to Abraham, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. We have a great high priest that constantly intercedes for us, that made the ultimate sacrifice for us in his own blood, in his own body, and goes before God and says, Lord, forgive them because they have put their faith in me. That is the Jesus. Know your Jesus, or know your Savior, 
is the great high priest. Verses 14 through 16. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a fiery flame, his feet like fine bronze fired in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun at, mid, uh, in the day, at midday. Know your Savior is just like God. And for you theologians out there that are going, wait a minute. He said, know your Savior is just like God. Hold on. Bear with me. Know your Savior is just like God. And I'm going to give you a bunch of verses here. Daniel and Ezekiel, specifically one from Isaiah. They're not going to be on the screen, and I'm not going to read them. Write them down and go look them up later. But I'm just going to tell you the references and how they correspond. Verse uh, 12, rather verse uh, 14 says, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'll get it one more time. Verse 13 says, like the Son of Man. Like the Son of Man was a phrase used in Daniel 7 through, uh, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, to describe God's agent, someone who spoke for God, someone who, who worked for God, who did stuff for God. Jesus, or John tells us that Jesus was one, looked like uh, one like a son of man, like the son of man. Look that up. He says he had, his hair was white like wool, like snow. In Daniel 7, 9, Daniel describes the ancient of days, God himself as having hair like wool, white as snow. John tells us that his eyes were like fire, his feet were like bronze. That's God's glory in Ezekiel 1, 27. And Ezekiel 40, 38, both of those places describe God as glowing like fire, like bronze, like shiny metal. And it was his glory that, that Daniel, or rather Ezekiel, was seeing. John goes on to say that his voice, I'm sorry, did y'all get those? All right, uh, he goes on to say, voice like cascading waters. That's God's voice in Ezekiel 1.24 and 43.2. Ezekiel describes it as rushing waters, cascading waters. Not that it was incomprehensible, not that it was a, a jumble of sounds, but that it was soothing, that it flowed in, in torrents, that it was powerful. That is the voice of God. And that, in Revelation, was the voice of Jesus, just like God. He says that he had a sword coming from his mouth. Isaiah 11.4 describes God's word as a sword, the powerful word of God being a sword. Hebrews, double-edged sword. That is the word of God, powerful, offensive, and defensive. Able, I mean, if you had a sword, you could take on a good bit of stuff. You could handle it. Ephesians tells us that the Word of God is our sword. A sword is pointless and worthless if it is sheathed and not used. The sword is only good when it is out and active and moving and working. And we're told that Jesus' words were a sword from his mouth. And then he had a shining face. This is God's glory in Daniel 7, verse 9 again. So we see that Jesus 
had the characteristics of God. Keep that in mind. He was just like God. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Didn't change. There we go. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Know that your Savior is worthy of fear. And we like, and I've heard people do this, and I used to do it. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And we would say, that fear means reverence. Can. But pretty sure in the context, pretty sure the definition of the word means fear. Be scared. Why? Because you're talking about the guy who created everything. You're talking about the guy that punished by sending fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. You're talking about the guy, and by guy I mean God, who hates sin. There are six things God hates, even seven. And he lists the sins in Psalms. God does not like your sin. God is not a cute puppy. God is not a heavenly Santa Claus. God is not a vending machine that if you put in your 25 cent prayer, you get your candy bar of, of blessing. God is something, someone to be feared because God is a powerful God. God is an incredible God. God is a jealous God. God is a disciplining God. God is to be feared. Jesus is to be feared. John fell on his face like a dead man. Even when Jesus tells you to get up and says, don't be afraid. He is allowing that through his grace. He didn't change. He didn't suddenly become weak and, 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 and helpless and, oh, whew, oh yeah, I can handle Jesus now. He is allowing you into his presence. God, the great and the powerful and the judging God, allows you into his presence. You don't earn his presence. You don't come to him and say, God, I got you on this one. I'm going to come and talk to you for a minute. God says, I allow you to come in, but you better know who I am. And Jesus stands there, and John knows who he is. He knows his Savior is worthy of fear. Now, in 14 through 16, I said, know that your Savior is like God. Let me clear it up. Know your Savior is God. Sure, he looks like God. Sure, he has all the attributes. Sure, John describes him in a way that the Old Testament described him, and that was great, and it was important because he was talking to people whose scripture was the Old Testament. And they looked at it, and they said, wait, John, you said this, but Daniel said this about God, too. Wait, John, you said this about Jesus, but Ezekiel said this about the same thing about God, too. Wait a minute, uh, John, you said this about Jesus, and Isaiah said the same thing. John, I don't know what you're getting at exactly, but you kind of described in the two people people is the same thing. What do you mean? Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega in verse 8. He says in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. 
He says in verse 17 here, I am the first and the last. That's the same phrase used of God in Isaiah 44, 6. So if he got the people, if John got the people to thinking, wait a minute, you're describing Jesus in the same way that you described God. Suddenly, Jesus tells John, I am God. I am the one who created everything. I am the first and the last. I am who I am. Don't be confused about your Savior. Don't be confused that, well, God said this in the Old Testament, but Jesus didn't say that in the New Testament, so that must be two different things. No, that's you not understanding. The God, the Jesus of the New Testament that Paul wrote about and John wrote about and Peter wrote about and Jude wrote about is the same God of the Old Testament that Abraham wrote about and Joshua wrote about and Solomon wrote about and David sang praises to. That's the same God. You cannot def define them. You cannot uh, 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 divide them, I mean. You can't say that's the Jesus of the New Testament. He got rid of the God of the Old Testament. There was a guy that said that. Completely disregarded the Old Testament. That was a mean God. That was a this God. That was a that God. Jesus is not that God. Oh, Jesus is that God. Jesus is the God that says, I created you. But then I died for you. That is our Savior. Know your Savior is God. And to be honest, you know, I, may, I'm, I understand that with that statement, I very likely am preaching to the choir here. But there are a lot of people out there in churches this Sunday morning that say they are worshiping, that say they are learning about Jesus, that say they are studying the Bible, that will stare you in the face and say, no, Jesus was not God. So we need to understand that that is foundational to our faith. And there are those that would take that away. Verse 18, Jesus says, I'm the living one, I was dead. Uh, I am the living one, I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. Know your Savior is alive forever. There are those that will spread the lie to this day. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There are those in, in, in groups. They call themselves uh, knowledgeable uh, theologians. And will say that the only thing historically about Jesus is maybe two or three verses out of the whole New Testament. He was just like any other man. Taught a little bit better. A little nicer than others. He may have died on the cross. Who knows? Probably died of old age. Some will say he married Mary Magdalene and had kids. But he didn't, die on the, he didn't rise from the grave. That's all story. But, it doesn't, but then they'll say, but it doesn't affect your faith. What? I got no faith if my Jesus didn't live and die on a cross and rise again three days later. That's no faith. That's a guy that I don't care about. That's any guy that's ever lived. No, my Jesus, my Savior, is alive forever. And, and, and the point is, the glory of that is that we have the same hope. We know that if Jesus rose, the first fruits, the firstborn of the dead, it says in 1 through 8, then we get it too as his children. That is our inheritance as well. This dies Thankfully, then I don't have to worry about dieting or exercising anymore. 
And everybody's looking at me going, you don't exercise. I know, but I worry about it. I don't have to someday. This goes away, but I live forever. C.S. Lewis said, you are not a body with a soul. You are a soul with a body. And the soul lives forever, and the body gets turned to dust, and then we get a better one someday, and I won't have to worry about dieting anymore or exercising. Know your Savior is alive. But it also goes on to say in verse 18, I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Know your Savior controls death and hell. This one's a little scary. And here's why I believe it's a little scary. Know that death and sin and hell have no power over his children. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can leave sin behind. You are no longer shackled to sin. You are no longer enslaved to sin. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, hell has no, creates no fear for you. It has no power over you. You will never darken its doors or cross its threshold. But Jesus controls it. Jesus has the keys. Jesus is the one that someday will tell people, Depart from me. I never knew you. So while for his children there is no power from death and hell, for those who don't know him, they are enslaved, they are bound, and they are destined for an eternity in hell. And they will not get out. Our Savior holds the keys. They put themselves there. They choose to reject Christ and go their own way, and they will end up there. But they will never find rest and respite and uh, uh, help and, and aid in those days. Because the gates will be locked, and the key will be thrown away. We need to know that. So that we do not stand idly by and watch a dying world get locked in hell with no escape. We know who have the key, has the keys. We know how they can overcome. And we are in a dereliction of our duty. We have not responded to the reveille of the trumpet call of our Savior's voice if we are not telling people that we have the answer. We should be court-martialed. And yet God is gracious and gives us another chance. Know your Savior controls death and hell. Verse 20. He continues in 19, sorry. Therefore, write what you have seen. Write what is and what will take place after this. He's telling John, you've seen some stuff already? Write it down. You're about to see some more stuff? Write it down. I'm going to show you a whole bunch of things here in a little bit. Write it all down. Know that your Savior deserves complete obedience. 
Why? Because he's the Savior who controls death and hell. He's the Savior who is alive forever. No, your Savior is God. So when God says, do something, you do it. Because the verse begins, therefore, verse 19, write what you have seen. Therefore, since I'm the first and the last, since I am the living one, since I, you see me and you know these things about me now, well, do what I say. Write these words. Know your Savior deserves complete obedience. And verse 20, the secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Know your Savior wants you to understand. Well, what do I mean by that? The stars were the messengers, the angels. They were the ones who, well, we don't, even, we don't really understand what they did. But somehow, they speak to the people of the church. God's Spirit flows back and forth to the churches. Notice where those messengers are. Notice where the message comes from. Jesus wants John to tell the churches, the message that you're hearing from John did not come from John. It comes from me. From Jesus. From his very hand. From his very mouth. In the form of a sharp sword. Understand who he is. He's the son of God. He is your savior if you let him be. He is worthy of all of these things that we've talked about and more. There are some areas we don't cover that John doesn't cover here. He gets enough, trust me. But know who Jesus is. Know who you are by comparison. Know what you need. Understand that we need Jesus among the lampstands. We need the message that Jesus has for us. We need the salvation that only Jesus offers. Know who your Savior is and know who you are in relation to Him. No private first class ever thinks that he can give the command to the general. No PFC ever thinks he can ignore the command given by the general or, and I don't know my level, so forgive me, but the, the, the colonel, the sergeant, the, the corporal, the lieutenant, wherever they are in there, I know they're bigger than privates. No private ever says, I can ignore those things. Let me, let me explain your rank. We are all privates. We have no rank. We have no ability to tell God, eh, not today. Know who you are and know who your Savior is. You see, at some point, 
and we'll see this clearly as we look at the report card. At some point, we can get kicked out of the military. Jesus says to a number of the churches, or every, at the end, every time, do not let your lampstand be removed. They could be kicked out of the service. They could lose their commission. They could lose their, their, uh, their ability, their stripes, their whatever. That can be taken away. God can step back from First Baptist Church. God can step back from the people of this church and say, I have given the orders. I have told you time and time again. I have sent my messengers to you, and you continue to ignore me. Have it your way. I'm seeing, I, I heard of a church this past week. The pastor was part-time. He'd been there seven months. When he got there, there were about 12, 13 people in that church. In those seven months, about 40 were coming. This past Wednesday night, they had a business meeting. 13 people in a not unanimous vote fired him. Just like that. 13 people. Or seven, or eight, or nine, voted him out, just like that. He's the fourth pastor, sixth pastor in four years. I'm beginning to think maybe they don't have a lampstand. God will do that. And it is my opinion th that, I don't know anything other than what that one guy said, that church probably needs to die that the lampstand has been removed. They have disobeyed the orders of their God for so long. They have kicked out his messengers so many times that he is ready to remove that lampstand. Do not let that be our future. I won't be here forever. And you know, nobody's rumbling or there's no vote to fire me or anything. I'm not getting at that. So if that's your concern, you know, calm that down. All I'm saying is, if we do not obey now, the day will come when I believe God will quit giving us orders and leave us to our own devices, and we are no good at our own devices. But for you who don't understand salvation, who have never asked Jesus into your heart, know the Savior. He's not your Savior yet. He's not your Savior just because He is the Savior. You have to accept that. You have to accept that gift. You need to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to be your child. Admit that you're a sinner, that you have broken God's law, that you are against him. You are his enemy, but repent from that. Believe that Jesus is the Savior, that he can save you. And confess that with your mouth. Confess that through baptism. Confess that with your life. And you'll be saved. It's that simple. Please, if you get nothing else out of this sermon, if you're thinking, what's what, menorah? What's he talking about? Know that Jesus died for you. And he wants to save you from your sins. If that's the only thing you get, Please get that. Let's pray.
Father, we, we come to you. Lord, we beg for your discipline. God, we do not want to see the lampstand removed. God, we do not want to see our commission taken away and us left to our own devices. God, make us an obedient people. Discipline us as necessary to get us there. God, whatever it takes in every life in here, mine included, to get us exactly in your will, God, use it. God, we want to live for you. God, we want to see the nations changed. Begin here this morning. There's one who doesn't know you as Savior. Lord, draw them. Lord, break down the fight. Let them no longer argue with you about their need, but let them come forward. Let them give your, their heart to you this morning. God, for the Christian hearts that have hardened over the years and, and, and are in danger of maybe their personal lampstand being taken away, God, soften their hearts. God, let them know you in a new way, have a renewed faith, a renewed fervor for you. God, let us see revival among us. Let us know your power and know your hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's your decision this morning? Hear your Savior. He's speaking. There's a trumpet. There's a clarion call. Reveille this morning. What's he asking you to do? What is that tune? Is it charge? Is it, is it form ranks? Is it get up? What is he calling you to do? Is he calling you to accept him today? Talk to me about it. Come forward. Let's pray. Let's talk after church. Fill out the uh, connection card. Let us know what God is doing in your life and give me an opportunity. Give someone. Go to someone else in here and talk to them. Let's get that settled in your life. Is he, is he calling you to be baptized? You've given your heart to him. But you've never been baptized. You've never taken that step that he calls us to do. Let's do that. We're baptizing next Sunday. Two people are getting baptized. Let's make it three or four or 20. Come forward. Let's get that taken care of. Is he calling you to Christ-likeness? You know you're saved. You've been baptized. But, you know, God, I'm not leading, leading the holy life that you've called me to. God, work on me. God, forgive me. God, change me. Come to the altar, give it to him, and then leave it there. And don't pick it up again. Maybe he's calling you to missions or ministry. You hear about this church planting thing that we're going to be involved in. You hear about the mission trips that we're going to be taking to Spain in the coming years, and you're thinking, God's drawing me, that, he's telling me, I don't know yet. Let, come, talk to him about it. Talk to me about it. Let's, let's, let's see what God's telling you. Respond to his call this morning as we stand and sing. Um, folks, we have got to be a church that, that obeys Jesus' voice when he tells us. And we're going to see some things the next few weeks, and we're going to go, wait, but we're good, but we're, we're not. Okay, we're, you're right, we're not. And then we're going to see some things, like, yeah, that's great, we, we've got that. 
But when he says do, we have to do. When he says go, we have to go. When he says wait, we have to wait. So let's get ready to hear from God and be a church whose lampstand burns bright in the community in the lostness of this world.